Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 24, 1 Samuel chapter 15 continued. We spent most of our last lesson talking about Amalek. 1 Samuel 15 is primarily about the Lord's instructions to his earthly king, Saul, to carry out the total destruction of Israel's oldest earthly enemy, most of whom were descended from Esau. And it is this historical reality that was at the heart of one of the several fingers of remarkable spiritual truth that I said we'd explore in our, our study of this chapter. Now, I know last week was a lot to assimilate. And some of it was perhaps a little bit unnerving. Especially the part about how Amalek essentially represents the entire Gentile portion of the world's population with one notable exception. An opposing, uh, and, and, and a, a portion of the population that opposes God. Now, the Gentile church has been more used to thinking of ourselves as God's good guys, and the Hebrews as something less. But the biblical reality is actually somewhat different. Now, we discussed that way back in Genesis, upon the selection of Abraham as the father of a people set apart for God, God's covenant people, the world became divided into two distinct people groups. But I probably haven't until last week hammered home the sobering consequence that natural born Gentiles face as a result of that divine division. Upon the Father's act of dividing the world, the world's humans into Hebrews and Gentiles, natural-born Gentiles became identified as the enemies of God. Gentiles continue to be the natural-born enemies of God's kingdom. Natural-born Gentiles were and remain enemies of Israel. And this is because natural-born Gentiles are born with the spirit of Amalek. Again, with one notable exception that I'm going to explain in a moment. Now, natural-born Israelites, Hebrews, on the other hand, are born as God's chosen people. Natural-born Hebrews are born as friends of Adonai. Natural-born Hebrews are born as members of God's kingdom. Natural-born Hebrews are born as enemies of Amalek. And this is because natural-born Hebrews come from a line of selected people who have been redeemed by grace... And so redemption is naturally theirs. But that redemption comes with a major if. You see, the redemption of the Hebrews down in Egypt, although given to them as an act of grace, was conditional. Each individual Hebrew was given redemption by grace, and they remained redeemed if... They trusted God and obeyed His commandments. Those commandments that would be given to them at Mount Sinai in just a few short weeks after their redemption. The condition was that if they ever turned away from God and rebelled to a severe enough extent, then God would react by voiding that redemption on a case-by-case basis. So when it came to the all-important issue of redemption and the resultant harmony with Yehovah, they were in a similar but not quite the same boat as Gentiles. Now it is possible for a Hebrew, in most cases, to honestly and sincerely repent, to turn from his rebellion, atone, and come back to the God of Israel and be restored to his natural-born identity as God's friend. But a Gentile begins life in an entirely different position and an entirely different status before God than does a Hebrew. A Gentile 
from ages past, had to give up his natural identity as a Gentile and voluntarily join himself to Israel on a physical, on a spiritual, and on a national basis in order for him to have redemption. That is, until the time came for God's Messiah to appear and begin his earthly ministry. So now here is the lone exception to the rule that all Gentiles are Amalek, God's natural enemies. In his mercy, the Lord devised a plan for the Gentiles of the world to no longer be counted as Amalek. If that's what we want. Under God's plan, a Gentile could apply for a transfer of identity. But the transfer was conditional. If a Gentile would trust by means of faith in Israel's Messiah, then that Gentile would be counted as a Hebrew, a friend of God. That Gentile would have his Amalekite identity and spirit exchanged for a Holy Spirit and a Hebrew identity that completely identified with Christ. He'd remain a genealogical, a physical, a national Gentile, but on a spiritual level, God would declare him to be and view him as part of Israel, his chosen and elected people, and thus no longer are we part of Amalek. Therefore, as Paul says in Romans 11, we Gentiles certainly shouldn't boast about our new identity and status. We did nothing to merit it. We aren't, we're joining Israel. Israel isn't joining us. Gentiles are exchanging our identity for theirs. They aren't exchanging theirs for ours. We're participating in Israel's Messiah. Israel isn't participating in a Gentile Messiah. However, if you ask the modern religious leadership of a number of mainstream Christian denominations, Jesus is now the Gentile Messiah, and Jews need to give up their Jewish identity in order to accept our Gentile Messiah. I mean, what a tragic, misinformed, arrogant, rebellious doctrine. It couldn't be more biblically unsound, Old or New Testament, and it couldn't possibly be more of an affront to Christ, Yeshua HaMashiach, who as a Jew came first, he says, to his Jewish brethren and only afterwards to the Gentiles. And that conditionally. Thank the Lord that his, as his redemptive plan now enters into the end game, there is a movement of the Holy Spirit in every corner of this planet among believers of every race and nation and denomination to give up all these tired old anti-Semitic doctrines that have grown out of these man-made traditions that were created for no other reason than a desire to rip apart what God has joined together. Folks, millions of we Christians have been operating under a case of mass mistaken identity for centuries. Now, with that finger explored about as far as I'd like to take it, let's move on. There's some other fingers of spiritual truth in today's lessons that we're going to uncover. So open your Bibles to 1 Samuel 15. We're going to read a few more verses. 1 Samuel 15 Page 313, if you have a complete Jewish Bible. What we're going to do is start reading at verse 1 and end at 23. Shmuel said to Shaul, Adonai sent me to anoint you king over his people, over Israel. Now listen to what Adonai has to say. Here is what Adonai Savot says. I remember what Amalek did to Israel, how they fought against Israel when they were coming up out of Egypt. Now go and attack Amalek and completely destroy everything they have. Don't spare them. Kill. 
Men, women, children, babies, cows, sheep, camels, donkeys. Saul summoned the people and reviewed them at Talaim. 200,000 foot soldiers, another 10,000 men from Judah. Saul arrived at the city of Amalek and he lay in wait in the valley. And Saul said to the Kenni, the Kenites, Go away, withdraw, leave your homes there with the Amalekites. Otherwise, I might destroy you along with them, even though you were kind to all the people of Israel when they came up out of Egypt. So the Kenites went away from among the Amalekites. Then Saul attacked Amalek, starting at Havilah and continuing towards Shur at the border of Egypt. He took Agag, the king of Amalek, alive, but he completely destroyed the people, putting them to the sword. However, Saul and the people spared Agog along with the best of the sheep and cattle, even the second best. Also the lambs and everything that was good, they weren't inclined to destroy these things. But everything that was worthless or weak, they completely destroyed. Then the word of Adonai came to Samuel. I regret setting up Saul as king because he has turned back from following me. He hasn't obeyed my orders. This made Samuel very sad, so that he cried to Adonai all night. Samuel got up early in the morning to meet Saul. However, Saul, uh, Samuel was told, Saul came to Carmel to set up a monument for himself there. But now he's left. He's on his way down to Gilgal. Samuel went to Saul, and Saul said to him, May Adonai bless you. I have done what Adonai ordered. But Samuel answered, Hmm, if so, why do I hear... Sheep bleeding, cows mooing. And Saul said, well, they brought them from the Amalekites because the people spared the best of the sheep and cattle to sacrifice to Adonai, your God. But we completely destroyed the rest. And then Samuel said to Saul, stop, stop. I'm going to tell you what Adonai said to me last night. He said, speak. And Samuel said, you may be small in your own sight, but you are the heads of the tribe, you are the head of the tribes of Israel. Adonai anointed you king over Israel. Now Adonai sent you on a mission and he told you, go and completely destroy Amalek, those sinners. Keep making war on them until they've been exterminated. Why did you seize the spoil instead of paying attention to what Adonai said? From Adonai's viewpoint, you have now done an evil thing. And Saul said to Samuel, I did too pay attention to what Adonai said. I carried out the mission on which Adonai sent me. I brought Agog, the king of Amalek, back and I completely destroyed Amalek. But the people took some of the spoil, the best of the sheep and cattle set aside for destruction, to sacrifice to Adonai your God in Gilgal. And Samuel said, does Adonai take as much pleasure in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying what Adonai says? Surely obeying is better than sacrifice and heeding orders than the fat of rams. For the rebellion, for rebellion is like the sin of sorcery, stubbornness like the crime of idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of Adonai, he too has rejected you as king. So Saul followed God's instruction to attack Amalek and destroy them. Since this was holy war, the law of the ban, the law of Hiram, was instituted. We discussed this at length last week, but briefly. Harem is a God-ordained law that bans the Israelite soldiers from taking any of the spoils, one, from the defeated enemy for their own use. Instead, the spoils of war are to be gathered together and destroyed, usually by fire. It was... By this symbolic, in some ways, physical and tangible, means that the spoils of holy war were given to God, the commander-in-chief of Israel's army. Obviously, if the spoils were destroyed, the soldiers couldn't use them. But we're also given a definition of what the list 
of banned spoils of this war against Amalek consisted of. And if we were to go back into earlier battles of holy war, we'd find that exactly which items were banned under any particular circumstance was always entirely at Yehovah's discretion. As concerned Amalek, everything was banned. And this included all human beings, men, women, elderly, children, babies, and all domesticated animals, and all of the Amalekites' possessions, and all of their buildings, and so on. If the Amalekites owned it, it was to be destroyed. If it was an Amalekite, he or she was to be killed. Pretty simple, pretty definitive, but apparently not to King Saul. Now, despite a full understanding of the meaning and the terms of the divine ban, Saul went ahead and captured spoils that included the best, even the ordinary. All these domesticated animals, all these things that seemed good and valuable to him, he kept, rather than following the Lord's instructions to destroy them all without exception. Further, King Saul left the head potentate of Amalek, Agog, alive. Verse 10 tells us God's attitude about this decision of Israel's king. He says, I regret setting up Saul as king because he's turned back from following me. He hasn't obeyed my orders. Now, because we're going to see this same basic thought repeated in this story and even concerning some other folks later on in scriptures I'd like to discuss it for a few minutes now this thought I'm referring to is that the Lord regrets doing something in this case naming Saul to be Israel's first king the Hebrew word being translated is Naham and it is a form of the word Nahum now Nahum means to comfort or to have compassion or to console. Okay. Now it's interesting, and no coincidence, that the village where Christ ultimately operated out of the most, Capernaum, is in Hebrew, Kafir Nahum, right? meaning the town of comfort and compassion. Naham is similar, but instead it means to regret or to console oneself. Thus, depending on your Bible, you'll see the English word regret, more usually repent, and that's the translation of that word naham. But we have to be cautious and discerning in ascribing the actual sense of repent or regret in this case, because so many times in the Bible, Words are chosen that makes God seem to have the same kinds of reactions and emotions as do his human creatures. But God's not a man. And in so many instances, the words chosen are but figurative or anthropomorphic. That means it's just a non-human is assigned human qualities. Now, I've been asked for, by a lot of people about this conundrum. And it's not a simple task to explain it, but I'll give it a try. The fact is that God lives in the spiritual sphere. We live in the physical sphere. God is spirit. We're flesh. The spiritual sphere may have limits but they are far beyond the limits of our four-dimensional physical sphere, and we really don't have any way to know what those spiritual limits might be. But one of the limits that we physical beings have, that God and other spiritual beings don't, is vocabulary. Another and equally important limit is that while we flesh and blood beings have no real means to see into the spiritual sphere, spiritual beings do have full knowledge and insight into our 
physical sphere. Spirits don't communicate amongst themselves with the spoken word in the same sense as do humans, at least as far as we know, using vocal cords and an alphabet and so on. Even if they did, they have things existent in their sphere of spiritual reality that we don't. And we can't grasp. Things that can't exist in a purely physical universe. So when we humans are communicating with one another about the spirit world, or about spiritual beings, and especially about the Lord, we're stuck. We have no, or at least an exceedingly limited visibility into that spiritual world. So we have virtually no other choice than to use human terms to speak about spiritual things, even if those terms aren't the best fit. Unfortunately, this is as close as we can get. And as a result, we sometimes tend to subconsciously bring God down to our level. And we assign Him with our frailties and attributes and at times limitations. Now when it comes to the Lord's repenting of making Saul a king, we have to realize that how this term applies to God is quite different than how it applies to human beings. For a man to regret or repent means to have a change of mind or heart. Usually it implies a mistake or an error of judgment that that we're correcting. If we repent of our sins, it means that we realize our error. We change. We stop sinning, at least that particular sin. But for God to regret or repent means that a relationship or a circumstance outside of him has changed. In other words, God sets the boundaries for good and evil, and they never change. God is near to a man who is good. He's not near to a man who's evil. So if a man like Saul in our case here, begins as more or less good and behaves by doing good, then God is with him. But when a man changes and he moves away from being good into being evil, God isn't with him. But who moved? Who moved? God didn't move. The man moved. God didn't change. The man changed. God didn't alter his definition of good and evil. A man simply moved from good to evil. So here, for God to repent or regret means that God is acknowledging that the circumstance has changed. And thus the status of Saul's relationship with God has changed. The man changed the circumstance, thus causing the change in status. Now truthfully, I can't say with any conviction whether or not the Lord has something in his nature that that closely or is exactly equal to our our emotions. I don't know. Okay, but here in this particular case We must not take Naham, regret, repent, to mean that the Lord's been surprised by Saul's rebellious actions and he's hurt by them. And realizing now his error in judgment, he's now experiencing a letdown. And so he wishes he had chose somebody else to be king of Israel. Because, see, that's the way a human might react. But that's not the way God reacts. And that's not what it means. So, later in this passage, after making a declaration that the status relationship between God and Saul has changed, we hear that it was because Saul hasn't obeyed my orders. 
In other words, Saul changed. Now here we encounter a very familiar Hebrew word that might surprise when you find out what it is. Shema. We've discussed this important Hebrew word before. And the most famous place we find it is in Deuteronomy 6.4. The passage known by the Jews as the Shema Israel, and among Gentile Christians is the hero Israel. The thing is that Shema doesn't mean merely to hear or listen. It inherently means to hear and obey. It's a very forceful term in the Hebrew language. Shaul certainly heard the Lord's words, but he didn't obey them. Therefore, he didn't shema Yehovah. Now, Samuel, as God's prophet, was the first to learn directly from the Lord that the status of the relationship between God and Saul has changed and the reason for it. And it devastated Samuel. Samuel was assigned by God with indicting now Saul for his disobedience and of informing him of the consequences of this new reality. We're told that Samuel cried all night to Adonai. Now the Hebrew is hara, that is Samuel hara all night to God. And while cry isn't necessarily wrong, it all kind of misses the point. Hara used in this context means to experience an intense, hotly burning anger or upset. To, to be disgusted and bewildered beyond the pale. So Samuel was greatly agitated and he vented his burning hot feelings towards Saul to the Lord. Now as much as it must have tweaked Samuel's sense of piety... That God's anointed king would rebel in such a grievous manner. The truth is, it was Samuel who had publicly anointed Saul. Samuel had stood before the people and sung his praises. Stood before the people and announced his kingship. Samuel had given up his own role as Israel's leader in order to be obedient to the Lord and be compliant with what Israel's tribal leaders demanded, a king to rule over them. All Israel acknowledged and accepted Samuel's divine status as a judge and a prophet. So, was Saul Samuel's mistake? Had Samuel misunderstood the Lord or even disobeyed the Lord and he chose the wrong guy? Samuel was embarrassed. He was bitter, disappointed, angry, and probably pretty concerned for his own reputation on account of Saul's great sin and now his very visible fall from grace. Saul's failures made Samuel look bad. Who among us would have slept a wink that night? But Samuel, who installed Saul as king, now has the awful task of deposing Israel's first king on God's behalf. No doubt, as much as Saul would suffer humiliation, Samuel would experience depressing consequences from all this as well. After all, if Samuel's divine assignment now was as God's oracle to Israel's king... And in God's eyes, Israel no longer had a king. Then what exactly were Samuel's position and status and duties at this point? Verse 12 explains that after a horrible sleepless night of pouring out his wounded soul before the Lord, Samuel sets off to carry out this unpleasant duty of informing Saul that the Lord has removed him as king of Israel. Now where exactly... Shmuel planned on meeting Shaul is not clear. However, as he gets ready to leave, somebody informs him that he ought not bother to go there. Because Saul was, at the moment, busy erecting a monument to himself at Carmel and is now 
on his way to Gilgal. Now this Carmel is not the Mount Carmel of the north of Israel that we're all familiar with. It's the modern site of Tel El Kermil that's about seven miles south of Hebron. Okay. Now the monument King Saul was erecting, no doubt, was commemorating the victory over Amalek. A very typical Middle Eastern thing to do. But not only had the Lord long ago ordered his chosen people not to erect standing stones, but apparently it was common knowledge that Saul was giving all the credit and glory for the victory over the Amalekites to himself. And under some circumstances, that actually wouldn't have been as bad an idea as it is in this case. Now, see, most of the battles and skirmishes that we read about between Israel and her enemies weren't necessarily considered as God-ordained holy war. So holy war rules didn't necessarily apply. They were generally fought at the current king of Israel's prerogative and impulse, even if they did often have God's backing. But with holy war, it's God who has ordained it, led it, and is the commander-in-chief. It's God's war. It's God who's predetermined the outcome of the war. So for a human to take credit for a victory in a holy war approaches blasphemy. One can only imagine how much more this news of Saul's monument to himself stoked the fire that burned in Samuel's chest over what Saul had become. So Samuel goes to Gilgal and there he finds Saul after his return from the monument ceremony at Carmel. And King Saul greets Samuel with this happy, joyful blessing that, of course, Samuel immediately rejects. Truly, Saul was living in his own little fantasy world, utterly blind to the spiritual danger he was in. Saul tells Samuel, Hey, I've fully carried out the, the orders that the Lord has given me in dealing with Amalek. And Samuel then asks Saul, If that's so, then... Um, Where'd all those sheep and cattle come from? Uh-oh. Busted. Saul's response makes it clear that he understands what he's done is wrong, but he feigns ignorance combined with, it's not my fault. Verse 15 begins Saul's self-defense by saying, they brought them from the Amalekites. They meaning his soldiers. And this was because the people spared the best of the animals. And why did they do this thing? Because the people want to sacrifice to Adonai, your God. Whoa. Talk about burying yourself. King Saul didn't seem to know when to shut up. You know, when I was a young man, regularly doing rather dumb things that young men do, and thus finding myself in a bind. My dear father used to say to me, Tom, when you find yourself in a hole, put the shovel down and stop digging. <laughs> I can only assume that King Saul never got that kind of sage advice. Now notice also that King Saul called Adonai your Samuel's God. Now trust me, this is not some idle Hebrew expression. The your exposes the nature of how Saul saw himself in relation to the God of Israel. Now, it's not that Saul would have said that, the, that Jehovah is not his God. It's just that Saul didn't identify with Jehovah in a way that we expect he, he, he would and should have. Now, in Christianity, we correctly talk about this enormous gulf between an intellectual knowledge of God and a personal relationship with God. I don't think I need to carry on about which one of those obviously applied to Saul. Well, knowing what he did was wrong, King Saul's quick to add at the end of verse 15, 
but we completely destroyed the rest. Well, here we encounter another one of those fingers that we need to follow. And the first one involves a principle that each and every one of us is regularly guilty of. And we all need to think about it deeply. It is that following a commandment of God a little bit is just as disobedient as not following it at all. Boy, that's a hard one. Here we have a situation where Saul destroyed most of what he was supposed to destroy, but he kept the rest, blaming it on the people to boot. And the excuse was that nobody was going to keep the spoils. Well, at least not most of it. Instead, they were going to offer it all to God as a sacrifice. Now, on the surface, that sounds like a really good thing. Who could be against offering God a sacrifice? Here's the thing, though. The law of the band didn't give Saul or his soldiers that option. The law was destroy everything. How often have you or I or our church or synagogue leadership made a decision that legally violates one of God's commandments, but we do it for a reason? That certainly sounds good or logical or merciful or profitable to us. Or we make a decision to follow a commandment partway. Because partway is doable. But going all the way is pretty tough. Now I suppose I could just let this principle hang floating up in the air like a non-threatening cloud. Kind of lofty and lovely, but far away, not really pertinent to anything in particular. But I think a short detour from teaching in order to preach a warning, again, against the casual Christianity that's overtaken us all. Especially in the latter part of the previous century, Entire new Christian denominations have sprung up that have adopted a hear no evil, see no evil approach to life. Others say that obedience is essentially legalism and legalism is bad. So to actually think that God still has rules is counterproductive to a believer's walk with Christ. King Saul here in 1 Samuel is about to lose more than his kingship. His relationship with God is going to be terminated over this issue of what in his mind was partial obedience, which as it turns out, is an oxymoron. And so I think we need to pay attention to this. Thus, in order to offend everybody equally, I think some familiar, common applications are in order so that we can see where this principle actually fits within our modern lives. So here are a range of some examples to contemplate that are certain to make most of us uncomfortable. And by the way, don't go running out the door if you hear one that pertains to you or you're going to give yourself away. (laughs) Here we go. It's generally theologically accepted that the biblical command for a proper tithe of one's income for a believer is 10%. And while we're not going to go into whether that's on your net or your gross, (laughs) my question to you is, do you actually set aside 10%? Do you give it to whatever Judeo-Christian organization or congregation or congregations you feel led? Or perhaps do you set aside 5%? Is giving half a tithe a tithe? After all, a tithe means a tenth. Is a tithe optional, optional or variable depending on your circumstance? Does the Lord give you partial credit for partially obeying His instruction? 
to give back some of what he's provided for you. You like that one, I'll bet, huh? No, you don't. <coughs> oh, but now for others of you. How about the use of symbols that represents him or some attribute of him? Do you have or use symbols that on the one hand seem to be prohibited by God's commandments, but on the other you have found are useful and have been effective in presenting the gospel or maybe outwardly expressing your inward faith? Is overlooking the commandment not to use animals or humans or birds or things that swim in the sea or any created thing symbolizing God other than something that he's directly ordained in the scripture? Is that okay? Provided you have what seems for you to be a good and righteous reason for doing it. Yeah, I didn't think you'd like that either. Okay. How about observing Halloween? Or some other paganized celebration that is a usual and accepted part of our culture. It's not a question of what Halloween's always been about, and it isn't good. But if you decide to change its intent and meaning to something that's just for fun, does that mean that God's commandment to stay away from joining with others into pagan celebrations to other gods, especially demons, no longer applies because you have a better or a different reason for doing it. Do you disagree with the holiday to some level and even see that it's maybe questionable? But on the other hand, you think you don't want to be seen as extreme if you don't participate or that if kids are going to do it, you might as well give them a safe place to do it? Didn't like that one either, did you? Okay. So let me frame this in a rather humorous but well-known and rhetorical question commonly used in our society. Is it possible to be just a little bit, but not entirely, pregnant? You see, this is exactly what is going on with Saul and his soldiers here in 1 Samuel 15. It's not an issue of whether they know of or even accept the legitimacy of God's law of the ban. It's an issue of obedience and application. It's an issue of expecting God to bend to our thinking rather than us bending to his. It's an issue of believing that if we do some portion of a commandment that perhaps it ought to be good enough. Since, after all, God is above all else a kindly and merciful being. Does anyone honestly believe deep down that God ever looks the other way at our disobedience or that we can kind of rearrange his commandments to harmonize with our wants and needs? I don't think you do. Rather, we just kind of go ahead and do what pleases us, what's comfortable, what's politically correct, what's trendy, what's traditional and customary, and then we confidently expect that God will accept our explanations and our rationalizations. Here's another way to think about it. This really all boils down to a matter of faith and trust. You know, when it comes to the commandments... Not to steal, not to lie, not to murder. We can all agree on those things. We understand the logic and the reason behind those kinds of commands. Frankly, it doesn't take much faith or trust to follow those commandments. Most non-believers don't think it's okay to lie, steal, or murder. But what about those other commandments? that may not be so easy for us to understand what God's purpose is for them. The ones that complicate our lives and cause us to question their usefulness. Why is it so necessary that we observe one very specific God ordained out of seven for a day of rest? Why can't it be any day that we choose? Why is one day any better than another? 
Why is it so bad to live with someone in peace rather than marry them as long as you feel a commitment to them? Why is it against the biblical command for two people of the same sex to be married as long as they love each other? What's so wrong with eating pork or shellfish? Why can't we choose to ignore certain biblical holy days of old and instead devise our own newer observances to the Lord and then we'll deem them as holy? See, all of these things take a lot more faith and trust to deal with than us just not murdering somebody. Because they're not all entirely straightforward. And the effects of obedience or disobedience to them aren't always immediate or even recognizable. In some cases, they fly in the face of what our society says we even ought to concern ourselves with. This temptation before Saul and his soldiers was just too great. The value of these things that they were ordered by the law of harem to destroy was overwhelming. It made no sense to them. Since God is a spirit being and He has no need for any of these things, then what's the harm in letting the people who fought the battle and put their lives on the line have a small share of these spoils and reap a small benefit from it? Come on. After all, wouldn't a loving God want that added prosperity for His chosen people? Can you hear these excuses racing through Saul's mind? because they race through hours. But even more, if Saul's to be believed, than his and the people's purpose for saving these animals that were supposed to have been destroyed was actually to offer them to God as a sacrifice on the altar of burnt offering back in Gilgal. So what's the problem? Either way, God gets his due, Right? In both cases, the animals are burned up to ashes in a ritual procedure designed to honor the Lord. Aren't they? Why would God be so incensed with this minor technical breach of legality that he would actually remove Saul from office and, as we're going to shortly find out, permanently abandon him? So here is yet another crucial spiritual truth to follow in 1 Samuel 15. First, there is no minor infraction taking place here. There is a significant difference between spoils of war being banned for God and destroyed and those same spoils being being taken home and then offered for a personal sacrifice. The difference is that the spoils of holy war already belong to God. They're his. The spoils were in possession of the enemy. Then they were to be transferred to the Lord. They never at any point belonged to the soldiers or to Saul. So in the burning up of the spoils as banned, God is just receiving what is rightfully already his property. But a sacrifice is something entirely different. The sacrificial animal was the property of the worshiper. The sacrificial animal represented a real cost to the worshiper. He either raised it or he bought it. So for Saul to take what already belongs to God and then to take some of it and offer it back to God on an altar is a terrible fraud. It's like stealing your parents' money, going out and buying a new TV with it and then turning around and giving it to them as a gift. Second, the destruction of the ban, by definition, takes place on unclean pagan ground. It's officiated over by secular officials, usually Israeli military leaders and officers. And it's burned up on a common fire, what the Torah refers to as strange fire. An authorized and holy sacrifice, on the, hand, on the other hand, must be officiated over by... Levitical priests. It must also follow a very rigid protocol, take place on holy ground, upon a holy altar, using a holy fire. The animals must only be animals that are Torah-approved for sacrifice, kosher. 
The destruction of the spoiled of the banned spoils of war can be of both clean and unclean things. Anything, everything. But unclean things can never be offered as a sacrifice to the Lord. Human beings can at times be part of the banned spoils of war, just like here with Amalek. But never can human beings be sacrifices on on the altar. Third, God didn't instruct Saul and his soldiers to gather the spoils from Amalek and return them to Gilgal for a sacrifice. Rather, he ordered the spoils destroyed on the spot. Saul and his soldiers were directly disobedient to a very straightforward command. They were all without excuse. They were all responsible for the great sin, but Saul was the most responsible because he was the leader. Saul and his army fell victim to one of the greatest stumbling blocks that lie in wait in ambush for us all. The never-ending search for why. Why would God want things this way when another way might be better? Why should all of these valuable animals be burned up and destroyed instead of being given to God's people and put to good use? Why isn't being mostly obedient counted by God as being fully obedient? Dear friends, I've told you, I tell you now as I've told you in the past, one of the worst habits we believers have adopted over the years is to regularly ask God why. And then count it, actually in some cases, as merit on our part. To search the Bible for why is an invitation to disobedience and disaster. Our constant search for why is really only to satisfy our intellect so that we can theoretically see if God's logic agrees with ours. But in spiritual reality, to regularly ask why is the opposite of proceeding in faith and trust. Instead, we need to be constantly searching for which. Which scriptural pattern or principle of God applies to our situation. When discovering the why instead of the which becomes our goal, rebellion will not be very far behind it.